Hey everybody, welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. This is Cole Fakes, and I'm joined, as usual, by Terry Fakes to discuss another difficult text in the New Testament. And we're in person this time, so we can uh, argue directly about our different views. Face-to-face. All right. Unmediated by the <laughs> by convenience of Zoom. That's right. So this week, we're doing one that ties in. Uh, we, we have some thoughts on this that connect all the way back to when we did the Revelation overview, because this is an right. end times difficult text. And uh, I think you've been teaching a series on First Thessalonians recently. I think this is one of the most common questions you get anytime you teach a passage that has to do with the end times. And there are two difficult questions in this text, but just the whole end times in general. I know probably the most popular right. series you've ever taught is on Revelation and the end times, because that's something people wonder about all the time. What is the next age going to be like? What happens after death? What should we expect at the end of the world? I mean, this is one of the most common questions, I think. Yes, I think the fear of the unknown is uh, just built into humanity and the desire to know what we don't know, to reassure ourselves. And the greatest unknown is death. And so it's a natural desire to want to know more about what happens into the world, death, Mm -hmm. the ending of things. I think it's natural human instinct to want to know more about it. So we're inquisitive about that. Right. Well, this one is, this passage we're going to cover today in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, is an interesting one because the letter to the Thessalonians, and there is some debate if you want to go back and listen to our First and Second Thessalonians book overviews, there is some debate as to whether First Thessalonians is first or second, or whether right. we can know that. I tend to take it as First Thessalonians is first, just because of the way he's referring to information that he's shared with them between these two letters. But depending on when you date the book of Galatians, this might be our first writing in the New Testament. Exactly. It could easily, and I taught it recently kind of with the teaser saying the first letter, and it, it could be. I, I think it probably is. But in any case, it's early letter to early believers in my research, uh, Wanamaker wrote the uh, commentary on Thessalonians in the New International Greek Testament commentary mm-hmm. series, and he is a, a very strong proponent that Second Thessalonians was the first letter. Mm-hmm. However, the consensus across the rest of the scholars that I read was the order that we have it canonically. So yeah. I, would, I don't think it makes a huge amount of difference. Mm-hmm. But I, too, would agree that First Thessalonians is probably the first. The, the other thing that's interesting, if we do a quick recap of where these letters came from, Paul is early in his missionary journeys and comes into Thessalonica. He plants a church. Things go wrong. He gets kicked out of town after only three weeks right. in Thessalonica. So what's always been interesting about that to me is you have a really young church, young believers, and they are... Uh, making do without Paul. They're growing and they're thriving in some ways, Mm -hmm. but they've got some questions in other ways. And the interesting thing to me that you'll hear when we read this passage in a minute is Paul here in several other places uh, says, I'm going to remind you of something that I told you before about these uh, end times teachings, which Strikes me, he's he was there for three weeks, mm-hmm. and he's covered some of these end times things. So sometimes I think we can fall into two errors when it comes into the end times. We can make them the total focus of our theology. You know, our theology revolves around what's going to happen at the end of the world mm-hmm. and how we interpret things like Revelation or right. 
the other apocalyptic literature in the Bible. Or we can make them of little to no value. Right. Like, well, we don't know. You know, I think we talked about this in Revelation. I'm a pan-millennialist. It will all pan out in the end. <laughs> you right. know, we, we can do that and say, well, we don't know. Well, here's the interesting middle road. Paul was in Thessalonica for three weeks, and he covered this. Because right. it has really strong pastoral implications, as we're going to see. That's why he's writing about this. And then at the end, in 418, he says, Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Our eschatology, we think our eschatology is the last things, the study mm-hmm. of the future. But eschatology in the Bible is always useful in the time being. Right. Exactly. So our eschatology actually does inform the way we live now. And what you're going to see is this eschatology is really more of a consequence of what do we do when things happen now that point our hearts and our eyes towards what's going to happen in the future? And so my goal with studying this book, and especially this passage, is that we would arrive where Paul does in verse 18, encourage one another with these words. Right. There's something that's meant to be encouraging about this passage, rather than just confusing. There's something that's meant to encourage us now about what this passage is saying. And I think we must root our eschatology in that. Revelation was written to encourage specific first century churches, mm-hmm. and it's still doing that to us today. Right. This was written as an assurance and an encouragement to a first century church, and it should do that today. So with that framework, now we can kind of wade into this and say, all right, there's something for us in here today. There's some confusing things in here, and there's some things that we really won't know until the end of time. Exactly. And that's what makes for a really interesting text to study. I agree. Well, as I, I'll read this text to us, but as you'll see as soon as we get into it, their question seems to be, what happens if some of our fellow Christians pass away, they die before the second coming, before the resurrection of the dead, are, are they out of luck? In other words, is, something, uh, is this really negative for them? So, verse 13, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who are asleep, those who have died, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, And with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So I guess we need to start like we usually do, just by fleshing out for a moment, why is this a difficult passage? Yes, and I think the first thing that jumps out at people is when we die and we are raised to be with Jesus, when will that happen? Specifically, what happens between the time that you die and the time that you are face-to-face with Jesus at his coming, uh, meeting him in the clouds? What happens to you immediately, maybe is a good way to say it, after death? And there seem to be two broad Christian schools of thought on this, both of whom appeal to the scriptures for hints and for direction at what this might be. And the first is the idea that when you die, your soul, if you will, goes to sleep. It's as though you went to sleep one night, 
you woke up the next morning, until you look at your clock, you have no idea how much time has passed. And so the dead might be sleeping, no time is passing for them, until the coming of the Lord. And that's called soul sleep, or mm-hmm. basically going to sleep. Another thought is, no, actually in real time, you die and you immediately appear before Jesus. And you are with him then before the day of judgment and the coming of the Lord. Mm-hmm. So it seems uh, those are the two major schools of thought on right. what happens after you die. Right. And, and this is something I think we even casually talk about in a way that may not reflect any kind of theological consideration. Right. I, I think, you know, the, the problem the Thessalonians were having was they, they were wondering maybe one of two things. Do the, did the people that died miss out? Mm-hmm. We talked about this in our book overview. Right. It's like you kind of need to be present to win at the mm-hmm. final resurrection. If you died before then, sorry, but you missed out. Yeah. That was what one group may have been thinking uh-huh. from this text. The second is, if you died, would you be treated differently at the resurrection than those people who are alive? Like the people who are alive are going to get to be first in line. And then if you got raised from the dead, you had to go through customs and you're going to be at the end of the line afterwards. Probably one of those two things is reflected in this question of a difference of treatment between the two. If you think about where these Gentile believers came from, is think about Thessalonica as in Greece, what's now modern day Greece, and the Greek way of thinking is when you died, your soul, if you will, went to Hades, and it was a real place, and you sort of wandered around, and it was just sort of a blah existence. And so, not to make fun of them, but if you grew up thinking that's what happened, maybe part of what they're saying is if you die and your soul goes to Hades, does Jesus get you from there? Or do you still have to be here when he comes back? It's not as silly a question as you might think if you grew up believing that. Well, and that that explanation frames up the two difficult issues like you talked about. There's the one of, is there a difference between those who are dead and those who are alive when Christ comes back? And then what happens after you die while you're waiting for Christ to come back? And And those are two related but separate difficult issues. And the first one is probably easier because it's the it's closer to the surface in the question that they're asking. Right. And Paul gives us a pretty direct answer here for in verse 14. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, this is probably an early creedal statement here. Yes. It's reminding them of what he taught them when he was there. We do believe that Jesus died and rose again. Even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So the dead will be raised. Is kind of this first assertion. And then, for this we declare to you by the word of by a word from the Lord, we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep, either temporally or in the quality of their resurrection. Mm-hmm. We will all be raised together, is essentially what he's saying. And so that that deals a little bit with this first question of is there going to be separate treatment for those who have died first or those who Uh, are still alive when Christ comes back. The other thing that you see in this passage that people begin to talk about that's maybe tangentially related to this, but I think it's worth mentioning here, did Paul have a mistaken view of when the Lord was going to come back? So in these early letters, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, he's talking about Jesus is going to come back any day. Right. We're going to be here. Right. We who are here. Mm -hmm. And then by... First and Second Timothy, Philippians. I think I'm going to die, and I'm going to be with the Lord. Right. Do you think that's a change in Paul's outlook? Did he, 
you know, sometimes in the liberal commentaries, you see him say things like, you know, Paul thought that Christ would come back and then he grew disillusioned later in his ministry, realizing Jesus wasn't going to come back that soon. And then he changed his view. What, what's your thought on that? Um, I think that's probably reading a bias into it a little bit, but I do want to go partway that, that way in the sense that I believe that Paul believed all of his life what he writes and the Spirit revealed to him is that the coming of Christ is not known to us, and it will be like uh, labor pains coming on a pregnant woman. You know it's going to happen, but you don't know when. Mm-hmm. I believe he that it was his belief at the early part of his life and the end of his life. Now, being human, I think his hope, and maybe even his expectation is that it would be that it probably would happen soon. Now, he's obviously mm-hmm. not predicting a date. He knows better than that. Right. I think there was eager anticipation at the beginning and then a realization later that it's just as sure it's going to happen, but I, apparently it's not going to happen in my lifetime. Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure he changed his view. I think he kept the same view. I think it's just natural. He had more uh, expectation that mm-hmm. it would be sooner at the beginning. And I believe yeah. that was a human opinion. I agree. I I do not think he changed his mind. I think he talks about it because he's alive Mm -hmm. in ways that we would talk about. So you'll hear people say today, uh, it's almost tongue in cheek. Some people say this really seriously, but most of the time it's kind of tongue in cheek. You say, well, you know, unless the Lord comes back, we'll do this in the future. If the Lord tarries, we'll do this in the future. I almost think that Paul was doing the same thing, maybe with a little bit more sincerity, but the reverse. Christ will come back unless we die first. Right. So it, for us, it's unless the Lord comes back, we're planning on him not in the near future. Right. Paul's like, he's coming back soon, but we might die first. Yes. Might be after. I think that's kind of his outlook. It's There's an imminence to it. There's uh, there's a soonness to it. Of course, yes. every time you mention soon, biblically not, as right. some consider soon. But there is a nearness that Paul was always aware of. And I think he speaks of it like that. I don't think he evolves, and I don't think he changes his mind. I just think he always had it on his mind. He had seen Christ risen, and he was anticipating seeing him again. Right. But he might die first. I agree. And actually, I think if we could adopt that attitude today, we would be better off. Right. And I simply mean that not to be too critical of us, but simply to say we don't think enough about the second coming of Christ. Obviously, one could be obsessed with it, but I right. think, if anything, we probably err on the side of not thinking enough about that. True. I think that's true. So the first question, I don't know that there's a ton of disagreement here over uh, the way we see people dying and if they're going to be treated the same way. But we brought up before, uh, in one of the overviews, the issue of cremation, mm. because this is another passage that somehow, some way has kind of gotten into people's consciences. There may have been an era where this was taught, that if you're cremated, you won't rise you no or you have no body to be yes, raised. Right. Uh, this is maybe our modern equivalent yes. of a question like That's the one that they point. were asking, which seems a little bit nonsensical to us. What do you mean if you died, you wouldn't get the same treatment in the resurrection? Now, the Hades, that fleshes yes. out a little bit why they would think. But from our standpoint, it's like, oh, man, it why, would, seems you, silly. why yes. would you think that? I would imagine they would think the same thing about our views sometimes on cremation. Right. Okay, if you've been cremated, does that mean when the resurrection happens, you are going to not raise, you're going to have a generic body, you right. know, they're going to get a replacement <laughs> for got, you. I've never you heard know? that theological theory. You get a off-the-shelf <laughs> yeah. generic body. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, you're breaking new theological ground yes. here. Yeah, yours doesn't really look like you, but it was one they had, so. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
But uh, and I've assured people just in ministry because you do have people ask this question right. that you know we're talking about raising the dead here. Yes. So God is going to do something this miraculous, and He's going to be thwarted by the fact that a body has been burned or lost at sea or decomposed or something. No, no. This is the God who raises the dead. There is not going to be a problem gathering all the particles from the end of the universe and, you know, the stardust that you have become and reassembling a physical body. Because this is a physical resurrection. we got to remember that. It's a physical resurrection in the same way that Jesus was raised and could eat, but he could also pass through doors. You know, it's not quite the same, but it is substantial. You can touch the wounds. So there is a physical resurrection and no, it will not be thwarted by things like being lost in the ocean or being cremated or anything like that. You know, I'm sympathetic to that in the same way I am to the Thessalonians because they had been culturally conditioned about what was going to happen after death. And so they had questions that don't seem sensible to us. We also have been culturally conditioned to burial, and now we're in the midst of a cultural transformation, really. More mm-hmm. and more people are being cremated, and it causes some unsettling thoughts. So I'm very sympathetic to it, but I would agree. If when you one reads 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I'll shorten this, essentially you see that this body has to die because it's a seed, and that seed produces the flower, if you will, mm-hmm. and that our resurrection body, we don't know what it'll look we don't know what we will be, but we will be like Jesus. Meaning right. this corruptible body is not the one we will be in. It mm-hmm. is a physical resurrection, but it's it's not a total home makeover. It's brand new mm-hmm. body. So I agree with you completely. And then, of course, I, I don't want to rely on logic over the scriptures, but also those whose bodies have been uh, are non-existent because of war and things like that that have happened. One can certainly argue that that's not beyond the reach of our God. So right. I think that we, we should realize our discomfort around cremation is because we're in the midst of a cultural change and the cultural issues are, are not, God is beyond those. Mm-hmm. So that brings us to the second half of this, which I think is the more intriguing question mm-hmm. and probably a little bit further reaching into other passages of Scripture. What happens when you die? And is there a soul sleep like you're talking about? Are the dead conscious while we are alive? Um, is there a rapture? What happens with death and the second coming? This relationship is probably the more intriguing question. So in in verse 16, it says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, the voice of an archangel, the sound of a loud trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, we who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So you've outlined a couple of the positions of what happens when we die. Uh, What else is implicated in this passage? Well, there are all kinds of implications around this. I'll just uh, let me go ahead and stake out my ground because I've publicly declared my my opinion on this, although I am not dogmatic about this. I'm comfortable with however people see this. This is not a salvation issue by any means. Right. I think the most comforting thing to believe. And what you hear at a lot of funerals is your loved one is now literally face-to-face in the presence of Jesus. Yeah. And that is so comforting. I think the scripture, the preponderance of evidence to this, to me in the scripture is that they are asleep. Yeah. And the next thing they know is when they pass away, the very next thing they know is they open their eyes and there's Jesus. 
And so I think the preponderance of evidence, even in this passage, is that the dead in Christ are raised at the end times, not at the beginning. Yeah. That's an opinion. Uh, it's my considered opinion, but I, it does not matter uh, to me. If people yeah. hold a different point of view, this is not something I would argue well, much about. There, there are. Th- this is where it gets interesting because it's difficult to tease out all the different threads right. of why people think what they think. Not, and I'm not talking about just any person on the street. I'm talking about commentators and biblical scholars. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is there are a lot of differences of opinion, and of course, with most things, uh, you know, where the Bible is not completely clear. We definitely want to leave room for right. different considerations. We are not the world's leading experts, but we do want to try and parse out what we think the Bible is saying. Mm-hmm. Um, there doesn't seem to be now. This is interesting because it connects a little bit with what we talked about last week or last episode we did on uh, the rich man and Lazarus. Right. There doesn't seem to be anywhere else in the Bible where you have disembodied spirits with God in a kind of pre-heaven waiting for the second coming. Now, there are reasons we think that there are passages that say that. So, for example, Hebrews chapter 11, the hall of faith, then Hebrews chapter 12, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Right. That has been taught sometimes like we've got all these people witnessing us, that they're watching us, Uh so we better be on our best behavior. Like people are up in the clouds looking down on us, which is a very familiar cultural trope. You know, so and so, grandpa is watching us now, so we got to make him proud. That may or may not be true. That 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 may or may not be true in terms of the time that we're talking about. Right. That passage means these people are witnesses to us. We look at their lives. We are witnessing them, and what it means to walk by faith. Exactly. And so we're spurred on. Right. So sometimes that's in our collective consciousness of people are watching us, you know, from heaven, looking down on us. I'm not saying that's not true. I'm saying most of the places you might think that that's really not what that passage is saying. I'm not sure there's a clear example anywhere in the Bible, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, that I can think of of any place where you have disembodied spirits who are watching what's going on on earth or who are waiting for the second coming. The clearest, the, the, Easiest place maybe where we could find this is in Revelation, but then you get back to the whole timing thing in Revelation. Right. Who, what, what is the timing of each of these things? I agree with that, that this idea of watching, and I'll just interject a personal note. It's my hope personally that if those who have died are in heaven that they cannot watch us because I think there'd be an awful lot of heartbreak in that. Yeah. I think the day of the Lord uh, when we come with him will be a day of rejoicing. Now, having said that, however, probably the most problematic issue for for the sleep is the things like the transfiguration where you see Jesus talking to Moses and Elijah. I don't think that that is, they've been up there watching us. So I, I, I agree right. with what you just said. I think probably the thought is, well, what about the transfiguration? Could that mean that those souls who have died are indeed with God or something now? And that's a fair point. Yeah. Now, doesn't it, I didn't look this up before the, uh, podcast, but I'm just thinking about the time that Samuel is awakened. Yes, with the witch at Endor. Yes. Doesn't he say, "Why did you awaken me?" Yes, or why did you? And maybe it he says, does. "Why did you bring me back?" I think it says, "I think it's the language of sleep," mm-hmm. which is interesting for this purpose of the soul sleep. Which essentially, what we're arguing is not that people, you know, so you die in the year 2022. Let's say the 
second coming of Christ is in the year 4,000, just yes. a long right. time in the future. You experience none of that time. Right. Because we are still saying, scripturally, you close your eyes on earth, you open your eyes in heaven. But from an earthly perspective, there's been 1,800 years that have passed, 22,000 years that have passed, you know, whatever. Yes. So you get these people that have been awakened while that duration is happening. Yeah. Moses, Elijah, right. Samuel, and then put back to sleep. Yeah. You know, go back to sleep until the end. So that that's one way you could think about that. For, for the rest, though, this soul sleep idea is those who fall asleep, like Paul says, awaken for them, no time has passed, like you said, to the second coming, heaven, all of that. It's almost like if you were a character in a novel, this is just an example, and you died in the middle of the book and things were not going well. And then the next thing you know, you get to read the last chapter and they all lived happily ever after. Mm-hmm. That'd be a really good way to live that book. Yeah. And that's kind of this idea. Whatever your circumstances are when you pass away, you will see glory when you open your eyes. Right, exactly. So so this becomes kind of an, a difficult thing, though, because we like to say, yes. I, I have said this, they are now with Christ. So if you have a soul sleep uh, understanding, are they or are they not? Right. Th- therein lies the, the pastoral desire to comfort people, which is true. We should be encouraged and comforted. And the theological position of, well, yes, they will indeed see Christ, but at this moment in our time, they may not be seeing Christ. That theology is something we usually set aside for a moment. And we don't want to lie, but set aside for a moment in a pastoral moment to well, I think about people. it. I think about it less like setting aside and more just thinking about, we're talking about their experience. Yeah. So if you, if you hang on, we've got two timelines, for example. The people who are alive are on one timeline, and they're experiencing all of time as it's flowing right now until the day that they die. So let's say there's somebody that died before we did. Mm-hmm. Their timeline, though, has like a hyper warp to the second coming. So if we say they are with Christ, first of all, they are with Christ because all the yes. dead are in Christ. Right. But if you just took their timeline of what they've experienced, right. they didn't experience anything in the interim, but on their timeline, the moment they died their eyes have awakened in glory. It just so happens that that moment is when all the rest of us have probably also died and then Christ has come. So we can say they are with the Lord. They are raised in the sense that on their timeline, you know, in terms of God fulfilling all things in their experience, that is true. But there is an interim in the sense that if you believe in this soul sleep idea, technically right now, they are not experiencing anything. So it's it's a, kind of a tricky little thing to sort out if you take this view of this text. But I don't think it renders meaningless or empty the comfort that we give each other. They are with Christ. Yeah, I actually, this is going to sound like a cop-out, but this is my actual opinion. And we could talk about this mathematically if we want, but maybe not on this podcast. But here's what I think. We live in a four-dimensional Existence, the three dimensions of physicality and the one dimension of time. And it's a linearity of time, quantum mechanics aside for a moment. It's a linearity of time. And we understand things in a four-dimensional way. When you die, you leave the mm-hmm. four-dimensional 
boundaries of this universe because God is not in the four-dimensional boundaries mm -hmm. of this universe. To God, what will be, what has been, and what is are all known and mm -hmm. knowable to him. Right. He is not bound by the linearity of time. Right. I think when people die, we have left this four-dimensional restraint. And here you and I are in the paradigm of four-dimensional restraint, trying to understand something that is not mm -hmm. in a four-dimensional restraint. So I'm not trying to just throw up my hands and say, we can't talk about it. All I'm saying is, let's just be aware of our limitations in right. talking about it. Right. And I think you're right. Are those people currently with God? Not in my four-dimensional paradigm, but in reality, yes. Yes. And, and I think we can say, with that caveat, they have been raised. Right. I, th I think we can say that honestly. Because in that, outside of this linearity, in the yeah. scope of eternity, they have been raised. Um, and they are with God now. You remember the passage where it talks about, and for this is the God who calls things are not that are not as though they are, mm -hmm. and we typically read that as wow, he's so prophetic. I think we miss the boat on that just a little bit. Mm -hmm. It's like no, it's way more than just prophetic. The things that are not for us already are for him. Right. Right. It is absolutely certain that this event is coming, and yes. that's the way it is with the resur resurrection. I don't know when. But it is a reality yeah. for God. Right. So I think that's a, a complicated way to... Well, it's not complicated unnecessarily. I think this issue is complicated. Right. Uh, but it's a complicated way to say, we do believe what Paul's saying here works out. Right. You know, if you just say, we die and then we are with the Lord immediately. How do we square that with our experience? Just like we, just like what we just talked about. Right. Okay. Let me turn it around, though. Before we leave this question, I want to ask you a pastoral question. So it's pretty easy. You're doing the funeral of someone who's a quote saint, mm -hmm. and I mean one of the the follower of Christ. And so you might say, "I have what you you are really saying." Since you and I are not judges, none of us know that we are judges. Nevertheless, everything that we have seen is we have confident hope and expectation that we will see this person, mm -hmm. that they are going to be raised with the Lord. What do you say at funerals where you think that's not very likely at all? Well, this is something I've learned from Lance. Um, you know, you don't want to say something that you know is false. So right. if you know the person was not a believer... Do not preach them into heaven at their funeral. Right. You don't need to point out to everyone there, I don't think this person's a believer. Right. I, you don't need to say that. But you also don't need to say, well, they are, you know, teeing off on the first fairway in heaven with Jesus. You know, <laughs> exactly. you don't have to usher them into there if you're not sure. Instead, what you can say is, for all who are in Christ, this is what's happening. Right. They are with God. I, one of the one of the things I thought was so brilliant for Lance is you know every person bears the image of God every person gives God-like qualities off and so we can talk about a person's qualities that reflect God and his nature uh, whether we know that they're a Christian or not we can also say something to the effect of what would this person tell us now yes they would speak the truth of the gospel to us now that is a good because point. wherever they are they're going to know that that was the truth and you don't want to do that in a demeaning way. Sometimes the family really wants a strong gospel message, even if you're not sure. Sometimes because you're not sure of right. what where's this where this person's heart was. And so you can say, you know what, when we die, here's what we're all going to want to know. 
is that Jesus is Lord, there is a resurrection, there is forgiveness of sins. And so you can give a, a clear gospel call to those who are there without implicating or um, right. you know, being disrespectful to the person who's died, but certainly not by saying, well, this person is in heaven and you can be too, if you don't know that. Right. You don't want to say that if right. you don't know that. You know, my, the first funeral I did, it was, I shouldn't call it a funeral. It was a little memorial service. And the reason that it was a memorial service was it was a young man who wasn't a Christian. Even his parents there knew he wasn't a Christian, and he'd killed himself. Mm. I mean, this is literally my first one. I mean, the hardest. You I think that's the hardest yeah, combination I was totally unprepared for it. And I think it, I knew enough not to say something that I didn't believe was true. And I also knew something to say that the purpose of this is to bring some closure for the family. And I think you could probably summarize that little message I gave as, boy, he sure loved baseball. I think that was pretty much (laughs) all I could figure out to say. So hopefully if you're ever in one of those, you have the experience Lance has and not the experience that I had. No kidding. Those those can be very difficult. Um, And it it is a reminder that we are here to bring comfort, earthly comfort as well as heavenly comfort. Right. You know, this is an encouragement from Paul to these people who are worried about people who have died. Now, these are people who have died in Christ, and Paul makes that caveat. Those who have died in Christ, um, those who Jesus died for and rose for, this will happen. So he even is making that caveat. Uh, But we're never doing it in a way that adds any more sorrow onto an already sorrowful situation. Right. But then again, we're not lying. Right. You know, we never allow comfort. You touched on this a minute ago. We never allow the impulse to give comfort to permit us to give false comfort. Right. And we never want to do that. Um, So I guess the last thing we just have to sort out here quickly is what about the rapture? You know, it's natural. You say, (laughs) well, those are two different questions. But honestly, once you start talking about the resurrection of the dead and the idea that, you know, the dead in Christ, those who died will not, you know, we won't precede them. It's natural then to say, well, when exactly will that happen and what will it look like? And in this passage, Cole, if there, this passage is where you go to find the rapture, what mm-hmm. we think of as the rapture, because where it says, the Lord himself, this is verse 16, will descend from heaven with a cry of command, the voice of an archangel and the sound of a trumpet of God. This sounds a lot like the second coming. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up Remember that word. We will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Mm-hmm. So uh, in Greek, uh, that word caught up is harpazo. But when it's translated into Latin, which it was for a thousand years, the church used the Latin Bible called mm-hmm. the Vulgate. It's what the new, or it's what the King James came from. Mm-hmm. Is that word is where we get our word rapture like a raptor snatches things, mm-hmm. a raptor bird, you know, snatches things yeah. up. And and it really literally means either caught up or snatched up or right. snatched away. This is the only place you will find the word rapture, mm-hmm. and it's in Latin in the Bible. And yeah. this is the concept of the rapture. Would you agree right. with that? Yeah, I think there are some conceptual parallels, like in Matthew 24, where Jesus is talking about the day of the Lord, right. you have the familiar language for when we talk about the rapture of uh, two women will be one at the mill, yeah. one is taken, mm-hmm. the other is left. People you think about that when it comes to the rapture. right? Um, but yeah, this is the clearest place of a rapture, both the word and the concept. And then 
there are some discussions in Revelation that we had in our overview of, you know, if you have a premillennial pre-trib view, which which would be kind of a classical dispensationalist view, the Left Behind books. Left Behind series, yeah. Uh, then you believe that the rapture happens at the end, but before the tribulation happens, there is this. Right. Where Jesus comes, and there he doesn't come all the way down. He brings Christians with him, uh, and they leave earth before the tribulation happens. Then you got the mid-tribbers, the post-tribbers. Yeah. They leave in the That's middle. They leave talk about afterwards. Much, if you have a rapture, you still then have to decide when you want to have that rapture. Exactly. There are different theological positions. But, you know, I would summarize it this way and see if you agree, just to make it simple for people that aren't as deep into this is no Orthodox Christian doubts that this is going to happen. Whether you, quote, believe in the rapture or not, end quote. That's a carefully, say that carefully. Everyone believes verse 16 and verse 17 are going to happen. The difference of opinion is, is the rapture and the second coming of Christ with judgment are those two different events, or are they the same event? Right. So believing in the rapture or not believing in the rapture is a little bit of a misstatement. Everybody believes that this is true. The question is, is it a separate event? Yeah. Would you characterize yeah, it no, that Yeah, no, the way? question is, is there a rapture in this passage? <laughs> I mean, yeah, right. if exactly. by rapture you mean a group of people taken before everyone is taken. Exactly, yes. Now, I, I'm going to, when we get to the section of our own view, I'm going to push against this this understanding a little bit in the sense that I don't think there's a, rapture on the first end or the back end uh, because I think there's maybe a little bit different way to read this. Yeah. But, but you're right. The difference is, do you think this happens once or twice? Right. Do you think there is a subset Christians and then the resurrection Which, of the dead right. or not? And uh, the thing about this passage that probably works against that is that it certainly seems like the resurrection of the dead, which is in the second half of verse 16, and those who are alive, which would be the people that are raptured, Yes, uh, in that understanding, happen at the same time. Right. So, and there's no second. If the, if the, if that's the case, if the if the pre second coming taking rapture, if that happens, then Paul doesn't mention here at all the second coming, right? Which would be very odd, right? Instead, people that collapse those together would say, no, this is about the second coming. The dead mm-hmm. are rising. Those who are alive in Christ are meeting Christ in the air. This is the second coming of Christ, the day of the Lord, which is in the next passage. Um, that's all one thing. Right. This is the end right here that we're talking right. about. Um, and then when you try and lay this on the framework of Revelation, it becomes complicated of where in Revelation does this happen. Right. And even if you believe in one, just this is the second coming. Yes. Where does that happen right. in the span of Revelation? So it's a very complicated topic. Yes, it is. I mean, and it, it's complicated in the sense that the Scripture doesn't deem this to be important enough to give us all the details we want, but it is important enough to give us enough to be encouraged, mm-hmm. to have the certainty of the resurrection of the dead. Yeah, God is not doesn't seem to be as interested in explaining all the little trivia to us of exactly how and exactly when. Mm-hmm. He seems to be very interested in fact, though in telling us of the absolute certainty right. of this happening. Yeah, the other passage that I think makes this a little complicated is in Revelation where you see the martyrs who have come yes. out of the tribulation who are crying out under the throne. and How long? How long until the end? Mm-hmm. There's a lot of interpretive questions there as to why they're there and other people are not. Right. Back to our soul sleep idea. Yeah. Are they an exception to that? Mm -hmm. Are they kind of a disembodied people waiting or have they slept as well 
and then this is the end. Everybody's experiencing this all together. Mm -hmm. These are difficult questions. We can't solve all these questions. But people will go to other places like that too, where you're saying, okay, you got Christians up here in heaven, and you got people down on the earth, you know, who are still suffering in the tribulation. So you have these two tracks. You're never going to find that in Paul. You're not going to find anything quite like that in Paul. Right. Um, and here, like I said, I think the dead are rising, the alive are rising. This sure seems like the full second coming, which we might put yeah. later in the book of Revelation. Exactly. I agree. Uh, when everything is finished and the new heavens and the new earth are coming, the new Jerusalem is coming down. Um, do we have any other views that we've missed on this so far? I think that's pretty much the two main ones. No, those are indeed the two main ones, which brings me to the point of... Uh, again, this is not something that we'd be so dogmatic about and say, you can't come to our church unless you believe one of these things. But what's your view? What, uh, In reading the scripture, what seems to be the more uh, convincing or compelling view to you around the rapture? Well, I think from this passage and others, I think that I, I don't believe that there is a rapture in the sense of an early rapture. Mm -hmm. I do believe there's obviously this this rapture, which would be the second coming. Mm -hmm. But I'm not convinced that this is a second coming of people leaving earth and going to heaven. I'm more convinced that when you read the book of Revelation especially, the end of Revelation is not uh, people leave earth, come to heaven. It's that heaven comes to earth. It's that the new Jerusalem comes down and the dwelling of God is with man. So I, I was studying this for a sermon last year, and again, I wouldn't be dogmatic about this, but this is kind of an interesting way to understand this passage. That when it says in verse 17, we who are alive will be caught up with them in the clouds and meet the Lord in the air. This is not the normal word for just meeting as in our paths crossed. Right. It's, it's kind of a hospitality word in that the only two other places that it's used in the New Testament... Uh, in Matthew 25, 6, it's the parable of the virgins who are waiting for the bridegroom, who they mm -hmm. go out to meet, like on the road, and then they welcome back into their house where they came from for the wedding feast. Mm -hmm. And then secondly, in Acts chapter 28, uh, believers travel out in order to welcome Paul, and they bring him back in with them to Rome. So it's like greeting a distinguished guest, but not going with the guest. It's the guest is coming to your house, and so you meet them and then bring them back to your house, which would imply that we don't meet in the air and then go back up to heaven. We meet in the air and bring Christ down to earth, which is kind of the picture that you get at the end of Revelation. The new Jerusalem comes down. The dwelling place of God is with man on a new earth. The earth is being renewed at that point because it's been destroyed through the tribulation. Yeah, when I was looking into this, same thing. It, it, in the contemporary Greek literature of the time, this word is also is used in exactly the way you pointed out in the rest of the New Testament, and that is if there were there would you would send out a delegation to meet an important personage to escort them back into the city. Mm -hmm. Now, I, I was careful about putting too much interpretive power on this one word. Mm -hmm. Nevertheless, it is a suggestive hint. Yeah. that perhaps may clarify some things in Revelation 19 when Jesus is going to come for Armageddon and 21 when you see the new heaven. Right. And you want, you're want you potentially arguing, could this be nuancing the timing of those two events? Right. Could the meeting with Christ be Christ's return, his descent, the day of the Lord, the full day of the Lord coming, which would be what we consider the Armageddon, mm -hmm. the final judgment, then... 
uh, on Christ's enemies, and then the judgment of believers in Revelation chapter 20. And all of this is taking place in a judgment and renewal of the earth. Because right. what I think is hard to square in eschatology is you can go through certain passages and say, and then we all die and go to heaven. And then you go through other passages where it says, well, actually, it looks like we all end up on the new, new earth. Right. Where it's a restored, redeemed earth. How do you do those? Some people do it by saying heaven is now, from now until the end. Right. Like we talked about earlier. That's a legitimate view. Some people say heaven is where God dwells now, and right. uh, then heaven and earth will basically come together when mm-hmm. the new Jerusalem comes down. Um, I think that this might be an interesting way to square both of those by saying we go up when Christ comes down, Christ reigns over his enemies on the earth, renews the earth, that is Jerusalem coming down, and we come back down with him to a new heavens, new earth, where we will dwell forever. Because we've talked about this before, the final existence of believers is not in a disembodied spiritual state in quote-unquote heaven. It's being redeemed physically, living with God the way we were always intended to be, right? in something more like the expansion of the Garden of Eden across the face of the earth than, you know, sitting around playing harps in heaven uh, in a spiritual state. Yeah. So anyway, like I said, I'm not saying this is maybe the the, um, only view. I'm not even saying this is my complete view here. But I do think it opens the door for us to think about how to square some of these passages with each other that maybe we greet Christ and come back down to live mm-hmm. on the new earth with him as our king, redeemed, mm-hmm. resurrected, raised. Right. Because at some point there has to be a resurrection of people who are alive. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, So the people that rise up to meet Christ in the air who are alive will also be transformed. This is what 1 Corinthians 15 is talking about. We will be transformed, not just by death, but when we see him and he comes back to judge and reign, we, even who are alive, are going to be transformed from our bodies to be right. like his body. So there's a, there's a lot here, and there's more to sort through even than we've covered. But that I would say that is my view of this passage. Mine is probably a little simpler view of this passage. On the one hand, I find it very personally appealing, the idea that there is a rapture that will remove the Christians from the earth, the Christ followers from the earth, before the really bad stuff happens. And then we'll have the second coming of Christ and we can come with him. That is very personally appealing. I, however, am forced to say that I find very little scriptural evidence for that. Now, that's an opinion. So people that disagree with that, I'm comfortable that you disagree with that. But I find it more compelling, just the evidence, the broad evidence of scripture that the rapture and the second coming are the same event. Mm -hmm. But here's the beauty of my position, Cole. If I'm wrong, I get raptured before the bad stuff. Right. (laughs) That's not too bad. I don't even mind being wrong. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review. Email us. Tell us what you like about it. Tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.